On February 22, 1946, in the small town of Texarkana, Texas, a teenaged couple stopped on an unpaved road to partake in some alone time. Within ten minutes, they were viciously attacked and beaten by a masked assailant. Though neither of them were killed, their encounter with what would soon be known as the Phantom Killer was the beginning of a killing spree that to this day is considered the number one unsolved murder case in America. Today, on Two Towns Over, we examine the case of the Texarkana Phantom Killings and how those events would come to shape one of the most infamous urban legends, the Hookhand Killer. Two Towns Over is a podcast where we explore the fascinating world of urban legends, conspiracy theories, and creepypastas to find out if there are any truths behind the legends. Join us as we discuss their origins and delve into the sometimes negative effects that these stories might create. With dark humor and natural curiosity, we tackle the darkened streets of the town we all know. The town where it happened to a friend of a friend. The town where mirrors become portals for vengeful spirits and the call is coming from inside the house. Welcome to the town with no name. This is Two Towns Over. Welcome, everybody, to Two Towns Over, where we dissect, discuss, and some other D-word, urban legends, <laughs> and find out if there's any truth behind them. Uh, I am Don. I am Ruben. And today, we are going to discuss the phantom killers of, or killer of Texarkana. So, have you ever heard the legend I, of the hook killer? The, as much as I know is about what was in that little intro about, you know... There's some teenagers on a dark road, usually like under a bridge or something. Yeah. And they, the diversion I always hear is like, for some reason, the the boy has to get out of the car to check on some strange noise. And then a few minutes later, the girl hears some, some struggling outside. And when she checks, her boyfriend is like, either like dangling above the car or like has had his head cut off or some crazy nonsense. Yeah, that's actually... You know, we're doing the hook killer, hook hand killer, but that is also um, kind of basically what you just described was um, a variant of the story. And we're actually, I'm actually going to read both legends to you. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we're going to read the legend of the hook. A teenage boy drove his date to a dark and deserted lover's lane for a makeout session. He turned on the car radio for mood music, leaned over to whisper in the girl's ear and began kissing her. Minutes later, the mood was broken when the music suddenly stopped mid-song. After a moment of silence, an announcer's voice came on, warning in an ominous tone that a convicted murderer had just escaped from the state insane asylum, which happened to be located within a half mile of where they were parked. 
urging anyone that notices this man wearing a stainless steel hook in place of his missing right hand should immediately report his whereabouts to the police. Obviously, the girl becomes frightened and asks to be taken home. The boy, feeling bold, locked all the doors instead and, assuring his state they would be safe, attempted to kiss her again. She became frantic and pushed him away, insisting that they leave. Relenting, the boy peevishly jerked the car into gear and spun its wheels as he pulled out of the parking space. When they arrived at the girl's house, she got out of the car and, reaching to close the door, began to scream uncontrollably. The boy ran to her side to see what was wrong, and there, dangling from the door handle, was a bloody hook. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the main story. That's kind of the the granddaddy legend. Yes. Okay. So I'm not going to read the whole story again. I'm just going to give you the alternate ending, basically. We'll, we'll call it the uh, what's the director's cut. Sure. Yeah. Sure, this sure. is a deleted scene. Mm-hmm. So the guy, they run out of gas in this one. Mm. Um, and it was about one in the morning, and they were completely alone in the middle of nowhere. The guy steps out of the car, saying comfortingly to, comfortingly to his girlfriend, don't worry, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go out for some help. Lock the doors. She locks the doors and sits restlessly, waiting for her boyfriend to come back. Suddenly, she sees a shadow fall across her lap. She looks up to see not her boyfriend, but a strange, crazed-looking man, and he's swinging something in his hand. He sticks his face close to the window and slowly pulls up his right hand. In it is her boyfriend's decapitated head. Twisted horribly in pain and shock, she shuts her eyes in horror and tries to make the image go away. When she opens her eyes again, the man is still there, grinning. Psychotically, he slowly lifts his left hand, and in it, he's holding her boyfriend's car keys. So those are the two legends. Basically, they feed off the same story, which was the Phantom Killer. Yeah. So the Hook legend first started making its rounds in the 1950s when it was told as a cautionary tale for the fa- with a fairly simple message. That message is simply, premarital sex is bad. Oh, yeah. That's like most horror. Yeah. And it continued to be cold- told in hushed, reverent tones throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. By the 80s, though, enough time had passed and famous cinematic killers like Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Michael Myers had entered the popular zeitgeist so that most teens told the story as simply a scary story rather than a cautionary one. The story reached a nationwide audience on November 8th, 1960, when it was printed in a column of famed advice columnist Dear Abby. Mm, I know of Dear Abby. Some folklorists who have a more Freudian bent... Mm -hmm. find meaningful sexual overtones in the imagery of the tale. The boy, who wants to get his hooks into Mm. the girl, is not only frustrated by her unwillingness, but afraid of his own lustful impulses, a fear heightened by the stern voice of consciousness emerging from the radio, and he has to pull out fast before... (laughs) That's a stretch, don't you think? (laughs) Before a deadly sin is committed. Oh, the tearing off of the madman's hook symbolizes castration. Oh, does it? Yeah. How? <laughs> Proponents of this psycholo- this type of psychological interpretation find the sexual apprehensions of both boys and girls represented in the legend. Because it feels like to me that it would just be the women. Uh, because, well, I guess not. Because at a very basic level, if it's boys are scared that if they have sex, they'll die. And girls are afraid that if they let a boy have sex with them they'll die (laughs) (laughs) now whereas the hook has a somewhat happy ending i guess as in they don't both die yeah the boyfriend's death does not end on such a pleasant note and could possibly be a more sinister retelling to bring the legend into a more modern and calloused world 
Mm-hmm. Make it worse because, you know. Yeah, so instead of they both got scared by a hook in the door, it yeah. was, he got killed. She was going to get killed. Because <laughs> it's the 20th century and that's what's cool now. <laughs> so is there any truth to the story? Well, sadly, the answer is yes. To learn the origin of the two legends, we need to travel back to 1946 Texarkana, Texas, where a series of murders led the town to all but shut down once the sun set and would continue to haunt the town to this day, inspiring the 1976 horror movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Wait, so there are people are still dying in Texarkana? No. No, it's just the legend is still... Oh, okay. okay yeah, okay, okay. it haunts the town. Okay, I thought you were saying that this killer was haunting the town up to now. I was like, oh, <laughs> and they've not caught this man, <laughs> or group of men, or whatever. Well, I mean, if you figure that he was... We'll say if he it's was... Probably a, it's probably a dude, you guys. Like, we're awful. <laughs> Uh, so basically what we're going to do, we're kind of going to do like a little timeline here. Sure. So we're going to start on February 22nd, 1946. Gee, Willikers. Yeah. We're going way back. Come on back. Come on back. Okay. Ah, oh, mister, my mom said I shouldn't talk to strangers. <laughs> I'm all right, kid. Okay. Yeah. 1946. Anyway, let's go. <laughs> At around 11.45 p.m. on February fi- Friday, February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Leary, age 19, parked on a secluded road known as a Lover's Lane after having seen a movie together. It's always Lover's Lane. It always is. Around 10 minutes later, at 11.55 p.m., a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door. Oh? Oh? Is Hollis a black kid? No. Okay. Um, And shined a flashlight in the window. Unsure if the man was pranking him, Hollis told him he had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say. Okay. Both Hollis and Larry were ordered out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to take off his britches. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Larry would later tell investigators that the noise was so loud, she had initially thought he had been shot. Jeez. Which, when it actually... What she actually heard was his skull fracturing. Yeah. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, Larry showed him Hollis's wallet to prove he had no money, after which she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant ordered her to stand, and as she did, he told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee toward a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run a different direction up the road. Larry spotted an old car parked off from the road, but found it empty, and was again confronted by the attacker, who asked her why she was running. When she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. Jesus. After the assault, Larry fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house. She attempted to call for a car passing by the residence, but she was ignored. Larry was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone the police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. The motorist left Hollis at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. They found Hollis's pants 100 yards away from the parked car. Larry was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Jesus. But both survived the attack. Yeah. Hollis and Larry gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. Larry claimed that the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for the eyes and mouth, 
and that she could see under the mask that he was apparently African-American. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hollis. All- it, okay, sorry, guys. Uh, let's just remember, it's 1946. <laughs> so two white kids get attacked by a person whose face they can't see, and magically he's black now, whether or not that was true at the time. We will never know. <laughs> I'm just saying there are two possibilities. Either he was black or these two kids in 1946 were racist. I'm just saying. <laughs> this is Texarkana, Texas, too. So <laughs> Hollis alternately claimed that the man was white and around 30 years old, but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded with a flashlight. Also a back. Yeah. Both agree that the assailant was around six feet. Uh, law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of their attacker and were covering for him. Ooh. Some, sounds very law and order. Dun-dun. Mm-hmm. Dun-dun. Which brings us to... These are their stories. March 24th, 1946. Okay, so a month later. Mm-hmm. Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17. No! <laughs> No. Yeah. Oh, no. This was 1940s. 1946. 1946. (laughs) We're found dead in Griffin Park. In Griffin's, I'm sorry. We're found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan Uh. on Sunday, March 24th, 1946, between 8.30 and 9 a.m. The motorist at first thought they both were asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There is evidence to suggest that she was killed on a blanket outside the car and then placed there. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head, and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside the car and placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board, and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. Jeez. A thirty-two cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. No reports indicate that either Griffin or Moore were examined by a pathologist. Contemporaneous local rumor has it that a sexual assault had also occurred, but modern reports refute this claim. In response to the murders, police launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas City Police. The Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County sorry. Sheriff's Department. I'm sorry, I just thought... Of course the tales of the people around the town involve sexual assault. Humans, have you ever seen a movie or a TV show involving a murder, a mysterious murder? At the end of it, you always find out that it was about sex. Always. Because it's TV. Because that's the most compelling thing as a story. That does not happen all the time in real life. Uh, At least as far as these mysterious murders go. It happens. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes it's just a murderer. Like... Every serial killer didn't have a sex thing. A lot of them did. Some of them just wanted to kill. It's, you know, but of course there were rumors about that. Well, there's always rumors about that type of shit, whether or not there was a death or not. Like if somebody comes into school with a black eye, you're like, I bet their parents are beating them or whatever. It's like, no, they they probably just ran into a tree because they're an idiot. Like, <laughs> but like, you know, just it's just interesting to me that humans often try to make things worse than they are. For a compelling story, it's like it's not enough that these two people were killed in their in a, in a clearly like in a gang type, you know how they say on TV all the time it's clearly a gang execution. Like in a literal gang execution, they were killed and then 
staged in a car by some maniac. But that's not enough for people, so we add the sex stuff. I don't have anything else to say about that. <laughs> it's just weird. So multiple police departments and the FBI joined the search, and local police had interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, including patrons and employees of Club Dallas, a local bar near the crime scene. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the Griffin and Moore case that would lead to the arrest and conviction of a person or persons responsible. However, the reward yielded no fruitful clues or suspects. Instead, it produced over 100 false leads. That's a lot of leads that are not going nowhere. <laughs> and that brings us to April 13th, 1946. Like a couple of weeks after that. Mm -hmm. Speeding up. Yeah. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her alto saxophone. Wow, speeding up and getting younger. Not cool, <laughs> dude. Uh, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band, the Rhythm Airs. Sure. At the VFW. A very 40s name. Yeah. At the VFW club at West and 4th and Oak Street. West, 4th and Oak Street. Around 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, April 14th, her friend Paul Martin, age 17, arrived to pick her up from the performance. This was the last time the pair were seen alive. Martin's body was found at about 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times, mm. once through the nose. What? Yeah. Again, through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. Jesus. Booker's body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body behind a tree. She was found by members of the Boyd family, along with a friend Ted Shopley, or Shopey. I don't know. C S C H O E P P E Y. Shoppy? Shoppy. I'm, I'm, mm. Sorry, dude. Sorry about mispronouncing your names. Yeah, if you're actually listening if to this. If, well, I'm assuming somebody with the last name Shopey or Shoppy could still be alive, so if it's you, sorry. <laughs> Probably got it wrong. They joined. The, they had joined the search party. Her body was lying on its back, fully clothed, with the right hand in the pocket of her buttoned-up overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon was the same as the first double murder, a thirty-two automatic Colt pistol. Martin's 1946 Ford Club Coupe was found about three miles away from Booker's body and one and a half miles away from his body. So here's the thing. I feel like a lot of horror stories have the moral of premarital sex is bad because some crazy motherfucker in the 40s was going around killing teenagers who were probably having some hanky-panky. I'm just saying, that's why horror... There was a fucking weird-ass old grandpa who was like, you know what? The one thing I hate more than anything in this world is when you're less than 25 years old, you're not married, and you decide that it's okay for you to have sex. I hate it so much that I'm going to kill them all. That's what happened in my head. <laughs> anyway, bye. <laughs> it's just, you know, we got to keep it light because, like, this is terrible. <laughs> People had to do live through this. People found bodies in their town in within weeks of each other. Yeah. In strange, clearly manipulated positions. That's fucked up. <laughs> so Martin's car was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who shot first. Or who, I'm sorry, who was shot first. Oh, I'm sorry. It. I know. <laughs> Killed the joke. 
Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez said that the examinations of the body indicated that both had put up a terrific struggle. Martin's friend, Tom Alberton, said he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Martin hadn't had any enemies. Law enforcement was unable to locate Booker's saxophone at the crime scene. The saxophone was eventually discovered around six months later, on October 24th, still in its black imitation leather case, in the underbrush near where Booker's body had been found. Okay, so it was just like hidden in some places. Yeah. Fuck. It doesn't sound like this dude took anything but like maybe wallet money, literally. Yeah. There's nothing ever stating that he... I need $12 to buy some more bullets. I hope this guy has 13 <laughs> <laughs> The reward fund grew to $1,700 for information leading to the person or persons responsible for the Griffin Moore and Martin Booker murders. That's a lot in 1946. Mm-hmm. Rumors circulated throughout the area, with one rumor suggesting a local minister had turned in his own son as a suspect in the Martin Booker murders. On April 18th, Captain Gonzalez issued a statement to the public during a press conference verifying that the murder had not been murderer had not been caught and that the rumors circulating among the public that in the newspapers were a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. Boy, I wish cops did that now. Oh wait, no, that guy was probably part of a slave patrol in the twenties, so <laughs> oops. So in the days following the funerals of Betty Joe Booker and Paul Martin, a ballistics expert at the Austin Tech Lab confirmed that the bullets were linked between the killings, confirming for the first time publicly that the killer was one and the same. At the same time, Gonzalez told the press that the case was the most mysterious he'd come across in his 20-year career. Neither report did anything to aid in quieting the fear spike rumor mill working away in Texarkana. In a town that had previously operated on a pretty lax level of security, relying on the local community, locked door policies quickly came into play. Guns and ammunition were also quickly selling out in the local hardware stores. The group of Texas Rangers took a back room in a local drugstore as a temporary hideout away from the local police where they could discuss plans to capture the killer. One such plan was to send Rangers out in cars parked at various lovers' lanes throughout Texarkana with a dressed-up mannequin as a passenger. Honestly, not a bad idea. (laughs) That is some spy-level shit. (laughs) We're going to catch this motherfucker. (laughs) How you doing? Manny. Oh, hi. My <laughs> name is Lily. <laughs> no, I'm not that kind of girl. <laughs> <laughs> you go to jail, motherfucker. This plan may have sounded outlandish, but the Rangers were not the only ones to come up with the same idea. Nah, honestly, it's 1946. That feels like the limit of critical thinking. So, <laughs> In fact, not only had the police thought to do the same thing, but local vigilantes themselves everybody had... was there was like three cars on every single lover's lane it's like everybody's getting there like oh jim you said that you guys were going to do this next week well greg i didn't know like and all the sears are empty of mannequins uh-huh. all the clothes just laying on the floor and the killer sitting at home having coffee like these fucking idiots once a patrol officer approached a couple parked up one night announcing that he was with the police he was told that he'd been lucky to announce himself so quickly looking down he saw that the driver had a pistol pointed at him from the moment he'd stepped out of his car. The traps all came up empty-handed, though, and no suspects were ever brought in for questioning as a result. Hmm. Local businesses and establishments chipped into the reward fund, which now reached over $6,000. Wow. What time is this now? This is 1946. That's Still. the equivalent of $76,000 today. Jesus. They also backed calls for a curfew to be put in place at night. 
19 clergymen of the local churches were the first to officially push for the idea after much suggestion and talk from the same by the local adults. They sent a petition that read, Whereas the situation has existed in Texarkana for some time, which is unfavorable for the proper and due observance of the Christian Sabbath, in keeping open public amusement places until an early hour, Sunday morning, and whereas this situation has further contributed to an increase in juvenile delinquency and crime in our community, therefore, be it resolved that Texarkana Ministerial Alliance petition the city councils of Texarkana, Arkansas, and Texarkana, Texas, to adopt an ordinance to close all public places of amusement on Saturday evening at 12 o'clock midnight. Could you imagine this going on today? Yeah. No, I mean, people saying you have to be in the house by midnight. Yes. <laughs> Earlier this year, there was a... It wouldn't go well. That's what I'm saying. It wouldn't go well, because people wouldn't give a shit, because we didn't. We My, sure didn't. They gave us a fucking curfew, <laughs> and no one paid attention to it. Zero people paid attention to that shit. People would be like... It's my right to get stabbed and shot if I want to get stabbed and shot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can't tell me what to do. If God wills it, I shall be stabbed and shot, but I am sheltered by his blood, so it shall not happen. You can't see my blood because I am washed in the blood of Jesus. Clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's people's real ass, just to get real topical for a second. There's videos of people online who are literally saying that type of shit about COVID. Like, COVID can't get me. I'm washed in the blood of Jesus. And then three weeks later, they got COVID and died. I'm just saying, Jesus' blood don't help you versus virus. <laughs> it helps you versus sin. If that's, the, if that's your core belief system, that's what it helps you with. Jesus does not... Jesus is a Middle Eastern man from two and a half thousand years ago. He cannot help you with the virus. He can't help you with polio. He's that's not his expertise. He's going to build you a good ass chair and help you get to heaven. That's it. (laughs) So whilst the subtext might be appreciated by all in retrospect at the time, it was not an unpopular idea. And many local businesses agreed to a voluntary curfew before the submission of the petition. Regardless, Mm -hmm. on the weekend of April 22nd, the Paramount canceled its midnight movie and diners closed their doors at 1030 p.m. It's a testament to the level of panic that had spread throughout the city. When one considers that even the young people of the time, for the most part, agreed willingly to the curfew. As pe- well, they were the ones getting killed, so. <laughs> As people linked the murders, paranoia began spreading with the overall anxiety in the community. People had ideas on who they thought the killer was or could be. The problem was, everyone suspected everyone else. So really, it could have been anyone as far as the community was concerned, and this didn't help matters. People began expecting another killing to take place, and this was reflected by the bot when the body of a young man was thought to have been discovered on Saturday, the 27th of April. After police checked out the call, however, they found a drunk 15-year-old boy passed out in the middle of the road. When four local lads had gotten their car stuck in the mud and couldn't make it home that night, panic spread once again. That was until they strolled into town the next afternoon, stressed but healthy. Now, the police had to follow all leads, including ones that led them to drunk teens lying in the road. Thought to be slightly more promising at the time was a call from the local music shop. They had contacted police after a man had walked in off the street on the 25th of April trying to sell a saxophone, and when the sales staff asked the man to wait to speak to the manager, he panicked and fled. He was eventually arrested two days later in the Waterfront Hotel after he had tried to buy a forty-five caliber pistol from a pawn shop. He no longer had the saxophone in his possession but he was positively ID'd by the sales staff from a music shop 
and the police did find a bag of bloody clothing in his hotel room. Hmm. He told police that the blood was his own and came from a cut on his head he'd received after getting into a bar brawl. What had seemed like a promising lead disintegrated as the man's alibis checked out, and by May 3rd, Gonzalez... Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like a dude who needed money for cocaine. Like, <laughs> I got into a bar fight, my shit was fucked up, I decided to sell my mom's fucking saxophone or whatever, like, it's fine. <laughs> so May 3rd, Gonzalez informed the Texarkana Gazette that he had been cleared from suspicion entirely. Except for the crack. Yeah. <laughs> Which didn't happen until the 80s. <laughs> so... Now, a second arrested suspect was a man never publicly named, but was known as Sammy. Mm. He was a local black man in his mid-30s, and he had been arrested due to the tires of his car matching tracks lifted and cast opposite the body of Paul Martin. Sammy didn't seem phased by the arrest and happily took a polygraph test. He failed it on three separate occasions. But something wasn't right. Sammy had had no police record and was a fairly amiable man with a solid local reputation. Also, polygraphs are only like 30% accurate. And this is the 40s. And this is the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) The lie detector was probably a man going, are you lying? Are you lying? You lying, boy? (laughs) No, I ain't lying. He lied. No, I I was at home with moms. (laughs) Lies. All lies. At the time, Sammy had had no police record and was a fairly amiable man with a solid local reputation. He kept insisting that he had not driven along the gravel road. However, and that each time the question arose in the polygraph, asking if he had been there, he failed. Sheriff Presley decided to take unusual actions. He took Sammy to Dr. Travis Elliott, a physician and practitioner of regression hypnosis. Yay. It's... it's Kind of a thing. We're not going to get into it, but. He spoke to Sammy in a private session and by the end of it was convinced of his innocence. Still, Elliot and Presley pressed on with the hypnosis session, and whilst in a deeply relaxed state, Sammy finally admitted to being at the scene. He hadn't admitted to being a killer, however, he simply admitted to driving home late on the night of the murder, pulling over by the side of the road to relieve himself, after which he stepped back into his car and drove home to bed. He was eventually cleared entirely. Huh. Whilst police followed up on... Honestly, that's pretty suspicious. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> like, if this was a TV show, he would be the one that they're, they let go at five minutes, and then at 37, they're like, oh, it was Sammy the whole time. <laughs> so whilst police followed up on the, all the leads they could, the local press also found themselves inundated with hoaxers calling up claiming to be the killer. On one occasion, two weeks after the murders of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, a man called the Texarkana Gazette claiming to be the Phantom and predicted a third crime would be carried out the following weekend, three weeks since the last. He suggested meeting with the journalist. However, he was dismissed. Killers don't call and callers don't kill, they assessed. Boy, I really wish serial killers were a thing before that because, yeah, they do, dude. (laughs) They do all the time. All the time. Hell, they even did before that because Jack the Ripper did. Yep. So it is a thing. It's wild how often serial killers are like, look at me, guys. I'm a serial killer. Isn't that cool? (laughs) No, dude. It's weird and violent and awful. And you should probably be viciously jailed or killed, (laughs) depending on the severity of your crime. The fact of the matter was people had been putting two and two together for a few days now, and they'd taken note that the first attack had occurred three weeks to the day before the second. The extrapolation from that point was to expect a third attack three weeks from the second, and so a countdown of sorts began, 
heightening the tension of the city as they counted down the days to May 3rd. Which brings us to May 3rd. No shit. 1946. No, for real? Yeah. For Holy real. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m. When you've got an MO, you stick to it, I guess. I guess. Even if it's like... Even if it's timing. Yeah. You, you figure you just prove them wrong. You're like, right. Like, just wait. A day early. A day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Go a day early or a day later, you know? Fuck them. Do it a week. Do it a week <laughs> off and fuck them up real bad. Like... So on Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder, was in his modest ranch-style home on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He turned on his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for his sore back. He sat in his armchair in the sitting room, which was just off the kitchen and the bedroom. While Katie was in her bedroom, lying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like the breaking of glass. She thought Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. She saw blood and then ran to him and lifted up his head. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. Jesus. Yeah. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get back on her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room, but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed, so she stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the screen sided, side screen porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards more My God. Yeah, to A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped, Virgil's dead, then collapsed. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, neighbor Elmer Taylor. That is some 1940s type shit right there. <laughs> There's a problem. Bang! <laughs> I hear the problem. <laughs> we got a problem? I'm sorry. I heard the gunshot. <laughs> Prater called to Taylor to bring his car because Mr. and Mrs. Starks had been shot. Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Prater and their baby rode with Mrs. Starks to Michael Meager Hospital, which is now the Miller County Health Unit, at 503 Walnut Street. Mrs. Starks gave Mr. Taylor, the driver, one of her teeth with a gold filling. She was in a semi-conscious state, slumped forward on the front seat. Although she lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock, and her heart rate remained normal. Does she have kids? They don't say. Okay. Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation, questioned Mrs. Starks in the operating room. The news was printed on the front page the next morning, Saturday, May 4th, reading, 
Murder Rock City Again, Farmer Slain, Wife Wounded. Four days later, Sheriff Davis talked with Mrs. Starks again at the hospital. Mrs. Starks discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared of being killed. Theory spread wildly about the identity of the killer. The killer showed no known pattern other than attacking couples, and the fact that it was every three weeks. Dude, I <laughs> love 19... Like, I love old school police records because they forget anything that didn't happen two days ago like, <laughs> there's been another suspiciously similar killing to this other one it was exactly three weeks to the day before the one that was exactly three weeks to the day before the one before that <laughs> no other patterns <laughs> some people thought him to be a sexually depraved maniac and nearly 400 people were arrested in relation to the murders wow Suspects included a University of Arkansas freshman who confessed to the crime shortly before killing himself in 1948, an escaped German POW, and a man from Los Angeles who thought he might have committed the crimes while in a coma. Okay. <laughs> you forget about those types of people. Yeah. So now that's the last murder. Uh-huh. And we're going to look at some of the suspects now. I wonder if it was that dude who was like, I did it, and then killed himself. <laughs> Well, probably not. So the first suspect, perfect name, is Henry Booker Duty Tennyson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Henry Booker was 18 years old and a University of Arkansas freshman. He'd had a keen interest in music and played trombone for the school marching band in Arkansas High, along with previous phantom victim, Betty Jo Booker. Described as someone who never fit in and living in it with an inferiority complex, he had shown difficult signs of for several years in high school, staying in his room and rarely socializing. Henry Booker had committed suicide by ingesting mercury cyanide. Damn. Yeah. They didn't, That's hardcore. Yeah, they didn't mess around in the 40s. He did not fuck around. <laughs> he was like, you know what, mercury or cyanide? ¿Por qué los dos? Like, oh my God, dude. Um, that he had bought the day before his suicide from a local store. You could buy mercury cyanide, I guess, back in Mer the day. You, can, you could buy mercury back in the day. Also cyanide, yes. They were fairly common. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, Telly, he told the shop clerk he intended oh, this to use one, it. Sorry. Um, future aliens using this as an anthology for what humans are like. I just want you to know, um, generally... We're willing to poison ourselves for, like, a very long time before we decide that a thing is bad for us. So, like, please don't get into any drawn-out conflict with us because we will fucking win because <laughs> there's too many of us. We just, we don't know how to die when we <laughs> when we try to kill. We used mercury, a deadly poison, as a medicine for ye generations. We used to make hats. We used to, yeah, dude. <laughs> we used to, we used to cut ourselves open to just bleed because we thought that would help. <laughs> and leeches. And leeches and all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> like, anyway. Well, he had told the, the, the store owner that he uh, was going to use it as rat poison. Instead, he used it on himself. He used it as human poison. On the 4th of November, 1948. Along with his body, police also found on his desk two notes. Oh. The first, in a brown folder, was a, a page that he had titled, my final note. Oh, dear. To whom it may concern. This is this is name like duty. To whom it may concern. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, to whom it may concern. This is my last word to you fine people. And you are fine. 
I want to thank you for all the trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you for all the trouble that you've gone to, to send me to college and to bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee, Mrs. McGee, the owner of the house he was rooming in, for letting me stay with her during my college career, and to Belle the Joe for putting up with me the way she did. She had to, I know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me, but that would be impossible. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night, and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep. And no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Craig, who was Tennyson's older brother, and tell him that I hope that his child is a boy. It will help him in his work. Everything can go wherever you think it will do best, except for the Viewmaster, which will go to Belva Joe. Please take my bankroll and give it to Daddy. I think I should go to him and tell him I don't want the car now. Well, goodbye, everybody. See you sometime. If I make the grade, which will be hard for me to make. B. Tennyson. That sounds suspiciously like a person who was suffering some sort of psychotic break. Either because they did or did not commit murders. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't either. So alongside That's the point of this. <laughs> alongside the folder was a second note, a pen, and to the right of this, a lockbox, securely locked. The note in the middle of the desk was a page that read, In a tube, a paper is found. It rolls on color and is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, and inside is the sheet that you yearn. Two bees means a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. So, apparently Duty was a cryptologist. Sure. No, cryptographer. Sorry. Whatever. Yeah. I. Yep. The riddle referred to the pen alongside the middle of the desk. It was printed with two capital letter B's, and inside was a further series of clues to the lockbox code. Unamused by the initial riddle, police only found this third paper later and instead broke open the lockbox by force. Yeah, no way. <laughs> Ain't got time for this. Fuck riddles. I <laughs> Clang, clang. Like <laughs> Inside, they found many further notes, drafts of the final note, along with versions of his own epitaph. One note was of particular interest concerning the earlier confession as to who made the killings. It read, Please disregard all other messages which I have written. They are only thoughts which I was thinking about as possible reason for taking my own life. As I think about it, it is none of these things. They are not the reason for this incident. There's a much later point to it all. Happiness. Yes, happiness. If I'm out of the way... All the family can get down to their own yeah, lives. I fucking knew it. It's a depressed person who was trying to solve the town with their death. Because <laughs> um, that's how depression works. Mother will not have to worry about me making my grades, and Daddy will not have to put out more money on me, which would do no better than it did in high school. No one will have to worry about me. Keep having to push me through the things which would be best for me. After much thought, I decided to take this way out. It took more thought than anyone can think possible. It started about a week ago when I began to think of a way to get out of this. Running away would not do any good. The police would find me wherever I went and would bring me back to it all. No, mother and daddy are not to blame. It is just me. If I had done what they told to to do, this would have 
never happened. Studying instead of playing around, going out with the people in my age group instead of staying home and dreaming. Texarkana Gazette ran the story of Tennyson's suicide note, but at first did not give any information about the second note that denied his involvement. On Sunday the 7th, James Freeman, a longtime friend of Henry Booker's, went to see the deputy prosecutor, Robert Hall, and tell them that he was with Henry Booker on the night of the Starks attack. The two were apparently together in Henry's house and therefore could not have been out at the farmhouse. By Monday, the Gazette had reported that a second note denying any part in the crimes had been found and that by the 10th, they had outright stated that Henry Booker had been eliminated as a suspect entirely. Mm-hmm. Evidence that the note was more fantasy, mere fantasy seemed to continue to stack up. His sister commented that she was unsure Henry Booker even knew how to drive. His elder brother confirmed that he had actually taught him to drive in the summer of 1947. He also mentioned that he had never shown any interest in guns, and he doubted he even knew how to load one, a fact that his sister confirmed. Mm. Henry Booker's body had its fingerprints taken and compared against the fingerprints found on Paul Martin's car, and it did not match. This appeared to be the final nail in the coffin in the case against Henry Booker. But not everyone is convinced in duty's innocence. I can't take that seriously. No one is, some, not everyone is convinced in duty's innocence. In a talk given at Texas High on November 8th, 2014, so they're still working on this to this day. That's wild. Forensic psychiatrist John Tennyson, a loose relation to Henry Booker Tennyson himself, argues quite a different story. During this talk, Tennyson argues that the note confessing to be the killer was only intended to be seen by his family. That the note reported at the time as a denial of confession was in fact not a denial or that the final note was a false confession at all. Rather, in this interpretation, he is merely clarifying that the killing should be disregarded as a reason for suicide. He also disputes the fingerprint evidence, stating that whilst no prints matched those found on the car, they had also failed to match the 12,500 other suspects in the case they had been tested alongside. In fact, he argues that with the mistreatment of the handling of the car, it's unlikely that the fingerprints were over the Phantom at all. As for shooting guns, he discovered a rather damning series of photographs that showed Henry Booker at a young age handling a 22 caliber Winchester rifle with an empty box of ammunition at his feet. As for driving, it was well known that Henry Booker visited his sisters in Robert's Courts outside the western boundary of Texarkana, around 10 miles from his home on the Arkansas side. Tennyson argues that it is unlikely that she would not have known how he got in her house on those occasions. Tennyson continues to dispute other facts reported over the years, too. In regards to Henry Booker's friends, James Freeman, he questions why he went to see the deputy prosecutor, who happened to be friends with Henry Booker's eldest brother, rather than the police, and why, when he was asked how the pair found out about the Stark farmhouse attack, he could not recall, stating only that they had heard it over the radio or someone came in and told them. He argues that it is far more unusual to remember exactly where you were, where and how you found out about such a large or shocking event. Perhaps most interesting in the argument is the fact that Henry Booker lived in close proximity to all the victims. Some are tenuous links with victims working at relatives' factories, but others are slightly more tight. He schooled and played in the marching band together with Betty Jo. Richard Griffin lived in the same housing as his sister, where he routinely visited to babysit his sister's children, and all three couples visited the Paramount Theater before the attacks, 
though in the case of Paul Martin, he had visited with a friend Tom Albritton, not Betty Jo. What would, have, what would that have to do with Henry Booker? Well, he worked at the Paramount as an usher during the times of the attacks. Are these just coincidences that emanate naturally from a small town? Or is there more to it? That, in one way or another, Booker was linked to every single victim and would have lived and worked among each and every one of them. What is the size of this town? Texarkana at that time was about 17,000 population. Yeah, that feels like small town coincidence to yeah. me. <laughs> so, if you had said 50,000 people, I would have been like, well, that's a little suspicious. <laughs> so Tennyson posits that all of this, alongside the fact that he was known to have shown signs of poor mental health and inferiority complex, had never really seemed to fit in with others and eventually killed himself, and that these are all traits that exist with far higher than average rates among known serial killers, keeps him high on the list of phantom suspects. Yeah. Do you know what it also has high traits of? What? Just straight up depression. Um, <laughs> you know, but sure, sure. Mental illness comes with a blanket. Uh, that. <laughs> so. So this brings us I to- could be a serial killer. Mm, no, no. Not yet. Why would I, where would I start though? Like, I don't know. You could start in this house. I'm too lazy. Right now, you and I are the only ones in this house. It feels like you could start your career just as easily as I could start mine right now. But neither one of us seems to be making a move towards this. <gasps> a knife. <laughs> <laughs> I won. <laughs> so all of this leads us to the most prominent suspect. The career criminal with the name of U.L. Swinney. Mm -hmm. I guess it's, it's Y-O-U-E-L-L. How would you say that? Y-O-U-E-L-L. E-L-L. U-L? Ewell. Ewell. Yeah. Ewell. Now, Swinney was a career criminal with a history of counterfeiting and auto theft. He was linked to the crimes by detailed descriptions of the Booker Martin murders from his wife and accomplice Peggy, who refused to testify against him in court. Two of the lead investigators in the case, Max Tackett and Tillman Johnson, believed for the remainder of their lives that Swinney was guilty of the murders. Honestly, Ewell Swinney sounds like a mustache-twirling villain. <laughs> Sorry if you are named that, because I'm with them. I, <laughs> he fucking did it. <laughs> so in June of 1946, with the investigation faltering, any and all leads are being followed in the hopes a breakthrough might come from somewhere. Max Tackett, which sounds like a, a makeup company, Max Tackett. That sounds like an 80s protagonist. I'm Max Tackett. <laughs> the Arkansas State Police officer who had earlier seen a parked car on the side of the road on the night of the Starks farmhouse attack made a link that he thought was worth looking into. He'd been looking through records of stolen cars when he noticed something that he thought constituted a pattern. On each night of the murders, a car had been stolen and a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. In the slow-moving times of the investigation, it was worth something to look into. On the night of Friday, June 28th, he found a car that had been reported stolen in a parking lot and decided to stake it out and wait for the new owner to come pick it up. If he'd been expecting a violent car thief, he was to be surprised as, instead, the car was approached by a young 21-year-old girl. The girl was named Peggy Swinney, freshly returned from Shreveport, where she'd married her now-husband, Yule Swinney, just two hours previous. Yowl, maybe? <laughs> Yowl? I don't know. Yule, sa she said, was back in Atlanta selling on, other, selling on another car 
he'd stolen. Peggy was taken into custody, whilst Tackett tracked Yule in Atlanta, eventually catching up with him outside the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station. When Swinney saw the officer, he fled out the back of the station and through a fire exit, but was eventually cornered. As Tackett approached him, he told the officer not to shoot, to which Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for car theft. Sounds good. It's got to be like an 80s. I'm going to shoot you for being an asshole. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm not going to shoot you for car theft. But I am going to shoot you for Jimmy. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. Don't Play Games With Me, you want me for more than stealing cars, King Swinney's reply. He didn't stop incriminating himself there either. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> in the patrol car on the way back to the station, he asked the officers strange questions, like if they thought he might get electrocuted this time, and admitting that he'd be spending the rest of my life behind bars this time. As her statement changed, however, it provided a lot of juicier details for the police. This is Peggy. Swinney asked me if I wanted to go to Spring Lake and park, and I told him I would if he wanted to. Swinney was driving, and he drove out to the park. After getting into the park, Swinney drove on around the park not a lot, <laughs> until we came to a dairy over beyond the park. No way. <laughs> we had seen several cars parked uh. around the road in the park. Yeah. Swinney stopped the car near the dairy, and we drank four bottles of beer that we had. Swinney got out of the car, and I asked him what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to take a leak. Lock the doors. And a minute later, I saw Swinney's head. No. <laughs> Swin it was being held by the murderer, <laughs> Henry. <laughs> Swinney left the car and I was alone. Swinney was gone from the car about one hour when I heard something that sounded like two gunshots. I do not know if they were pistol shots or shotgun shots. It was just getting daylight when Swinney came back to the car. He'd been gone four or five hours. That Jesus is one Christ, that's piss. a long ass leak. Swinney got into the car and started driving out of the park at a rapid rate of speed. When Swinney came back to the car, I saw that his clothes were wet up to his knees and damp on up to his waist. Before getting out of the park, we passed a car, which I remember as being a coupe. I don't remember what color it was. Swinney stopped the car. He got out, back to the coupe, parked on the side of the road. I saw him look into the car and get something out of it. He brought a large black case, which looked like a hard leather black box, and put it into the trunk of the car we were in. I asked Swinney what he was doing getting something out of this car. Swinney replied that a friend told him to come out here and get it. We then left the park and drove to my mother's on Richmond Road. Now, at first sight, the statement might have seemed exciting for any officer reading the report. Some of it seemed strange, though, and it was unsigned by Peggy. Fortunately, the next afternoon at 2 p.m., she would give a second statement. This time, her statement switched it up a little. She included more details, like the time they had gotten into the park, 1 a.m., and how, as they passed the coupe, so when he stopped the car and told Peggy how he wanted to rob the people in it, he shot the boy two times, she added. She also refined her earlier statement, saying that she'd lied and that the car had been on, up on a gravel road. Again, this statement went unsigned by Peggy. So the problem with both statements were many, not least of which is that the details she was giving police simply weren't matching with the facts of the case. She told police that the pair had been had driven up to the park at 1 a.m., but Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker hadn't even left the veterans of Foreign Wars Club by that point. So how could they have been in the park? The area where she had told police the shooting took place was also not the same as the true facts of the case. Aside from this, there were several contradictions between each statement. Had Swinney left her alone in the car, or had they robbed the couple together? Had Swinney pulled over to the side of the road to change his wet clothes, or had he stopped into a restroom to change his bloody clothes? 
She gave a third statement eight hours later at 10 p.m. In this statement, she gave a third, once again different, account of the evening. The robbery played out much the same, only this time Swinney, she said, took off with Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, leaving her behind to dump them. This time, his clothes weren't wet upon return but covered in blood. They pulled over in the park restroom to change and then burned the clothes in Dallas. Mm-hmm. On July 28th, Miller County Sheriff Davis drove Peggy to Dallas to find the spot she and Swinney had burnt the bloody clothing. But after hours of searching, she was unable to find any place with evidence of a fire. Eventually, she gave in and admitted this part of her statement had been a lie and that she'd given her statement after extensive questioning. Still, although the evidence was highly circumstantial, the police thought it was enough for now, and at least the attacks had stopped. Mm. Life in Texarkana could return to normal. On October 24th, fence repairers working in Spring Lake Park stumbled across the next big piece of evidence. They found Betty Jo Booker's sacks as they had been digging out a fence post. It had been dumped in the long grass, tossed over the fence. The Gazette ran a front-page story that ran for four days on the find. Wow. People in Texarkana were hopeful. This provided police another hurdle in Peggy Swinney's statement, however. Peggy had told police that Yule had dumped the sacks in the trunk of his car, yet there it was back out in the park. Fortunately for police, Peggy was willing to give another statement a full (laughs) month later on November 22nd. This time, they entered the park at 3.30 a.m., and the Sachs case was tossed over the fence. At least she said the case was tossed over the fence after police asked her which, which it was, tossed over the, by the fence or over it. Swinney's own statement was giving nothing away. He maintained that he'd been out drinking in a club when Peggy and some friends on the night of the Hollis and Larry attack and later slept alone. On the night of the other attacks, he claimed he spent various nights alone with Peggy, denying anything to do with the murders only ever admitting to stealing cars. Fortunately for police, the statements from Yule and Peggy weren't the only thing that was linking Swinney to the Phantom, and in the five months between Peggy's first and final statement, they'd uncovered a few other pieces of information which appeared to nail Swinney home as the prime suspect in the attacks. Swinney had been known to own a thirty-two caliber Colt automatic pistol, though he'd lost it in a game of craps at some point in the past. Alongside this, a khaki work shirt had been handed in to the police by Peggy's sister's husband. She found the shirt in, the, in her home where Yule and Peggy had stayed previously for a time, and it appeared to have a laundry mark with the name Stark. The shirt was sent to the FBI, who examined the laundry mark, confirming it did say Stark. It missed the final S of Virgil. I'm actually constantly surprised. At the level of competence of 1946 technology, not just the police, but, like, the fact that they can match fingerprints and, like, do forensics that are sophisticated enough to, like, get inks out of stuff. It's pretty pretty neat. And, you know, and you never really think about when these things came about, you know? Yeah. You always assume it was when you were a kid or whatever. (laughs) Everything happened five years ago, didn't it? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Had to. Had to. A few months ago. We didn't even have fingerprints until ten years ago. They figured it out, like, three months ago. We just figured it out. It's fine. (laughs) So the shirt was sent to the FBI who examined the laundry mark, determining it to say Stark. It missed the final S of Virgil Stark's surname, but it was close enough. During the examination, they also found slag on the front pocket, which comes from a welding shop. The two slotted nicely into place. Catherine Starks wasn't sure if it had belonged to her husband or not, and whilst she confirmed it at first, the day after, she felt she could not be too sure to say for certain. Mm Mm-hmm. Police thought this might have been due to her not wanting to condemn a suspect to the chair. 
There was one other key piece of evidence at the time, that of a date book taken from near the body of Paul Martin that Sheriff Presley had pocketed. He had since never made it public, and when they took Peggy to the scene and asked her if she'd seen Newell take anything from the death dead boy's pocket, she replied, I saw him take some papers and stuff. This was close enough, apparently, to constitute as a date book, though the book was never sent for fingerprinting and no direct questions stating the date book explicitly were ever brought up in her questioning. Not even when she sat for a polygraph, once again, it was more circumstantial and vague evidence that fell into the pile. Hmm. The real problem with Peggy's statements lie in the fact that, aside from her contradictions and ever-changing story, saying that she knew details that she only could have known if she'd been there was not quite true. The Texarkana Gazette had themselves printed a map of locations of the attack in Spring Lake Park two months before Peggy's arrest, and given the sheer amount of onlookers that crowded the crime scenes after the attacks, Half of Texarkana literally knew several details, which might incriminate them if they were, that was all it took. Mm-hmm. This was, after all, the most talked about and reported news story in 1946. The saxophone is another thorny issue. Up until it was eventually discovered by accident, was it brought up in detail in any of Peggy's statements? In her earlier statements, it had simply been tossed in the trunk of the car, so was, which was true. Had they tossed it over the fence or driven off with it in the car? If they had driven off, this would suggest that Yule Swinney drove back to the crime scene and dumped it over the fence at a later date. A move which one would... Which would make sense if he tried to pawn it. Yeah. Um, this is a move um, <clears throat> which one might consider risky at best and outright stupid at worst. By the time of her fourth statement, police knew many details about its location, however, and it had run for four days in the Gazette. One might e begin to wonder... If she had been asked leading questions during her interrogations or worse, how extensive her questioning had been. She'd been interrogated by 12 officers by the time of her first fourth statement, and some were commented on as old school in their operations, which leaves little to the imagination. To top it off, she later recanted her statement and in a letter to her parents told them of how she'd lied to the police after exhausting questioning. Further to this, the only proof that Swinney himself had even been in Texarkana at the night of the 13th and 14th of April was from a statement made by Peggy's parents, a statement which they, they too later recanted. Even the khaki shirt leaves us with some confusion, as there are three different documents, each telling a slightly different story of how it came to be in the police's possession, and one claimed it had come from a motel which police could never prove Swinney had ever stayed in. As quickly as evidence stacked up against Swinney, it fell down under hard scrutiny. Eventually, police were found to not have enough hard evidence on him for the murders. Peggy refused to testify against him in court, and by law, as his wife, she could not be forced into doing so. Instead, he was tried for car theft, and since he'd been a repeat offender, was sentenced to life all the same. Had they got the right man? Some seemed to think so, but others were never so sure. Mahaffey, the editor of the Gazette, told the Dallas Morning News years later that he was never convinced by Swinney and Sheriff Presley's nephew spoke in the 50th anniversary article of the attacks in the Texarkana Gazette of how he never quite believed his uncle had been 100% sure. I get the impression that my uncle was not 100% certain that the evidence they had on the leading suspect was conclusive enough, he said. He had deep feelings for people, and he knew that because of the emotions of the times, that whoever was convicted probably would be electrocuted. He wanted to be absolutely certain. Nevertheless, Swinney was undeniably a criminal and, that, and the prime suspect. 
The killings had stopped, and the fear that had gripped Texarkana had finally dissipated. Life was getting back to normal. Until. <laughs> now, as it turned out, Swinney had led quite the life of crime. He'd been arrested before on charges of car theft, violence, and counterfeiting. Despite his earlier incriminating questions, however, he wasn't ready to confess to the Phantom's murder. Along, aside from that, Tackett's pattern of theft and car abandonment were not quite matching up either. Now, it was true that Swinney had stolen a green 1941 model Plymouth that had not been until the night after the murders of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, and Swinney still had the car three months later. He also hadn't stolen a car on the night of the attacks of Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary. In fact, in Tackett's own notes on the case, police couldn't ever prove if Swinney had a car at all on the night of Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary's attacks. There had been reports of witnesses seeing him take a cab to the the day after, and he was also seen walking the streets at 2 a.m. Peggy Swinney was held in custody, accused of being an accomplice in the murders of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, but had been remaining tight-lipped. It took her almost a full month to give a statement, at which point she had at which point she then gave three statements spanning two days. Her first statement came on the morning of July 23rd and confessed to taking the saxophone of Paul Martin's coup out of Paul Martin's coupe. Although at the start of the statement, she gave contradicting information, suggesting that Swinney had already had the saxophone earlier the same day, apparently given to him, and alludes to him selling it for $20. Swinney was convicted of auto theft in 1947, and as a repeat offender, he received life in prison. However, he was released from prison in 1973 following a habeas corpus proceeding, which found that the prior conviction in 1941 used for sentence enhancement purposes was void because Swinney had not been represented by counsel. Investigation into his involvement in the murders eventually faded, the case remains unsolved, and physical evidence is virtually non-existent today. Swinney died in a Dallas nursing home in 1994. So as the years passed, the terrible story passed from the news. Yeah. To campfire stories and into the realm of legend. Part of this was due to the 1976 horror movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. This movie, told in faux documentary style, retells the story of the vicious attacks from the spring of 1946. But as all movies based on true stories, some liberties were taken to enhance the shock factor of the murders. Mm -hmm. Do they add sex stuff, like I said? No. Oh. The most egregious of the liberties deals with the murder of Betty Jo Booker. As was stated earlier and throughout this, Betty Jo Booker played the saxophone in her band. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, she played the trombone. Why? Because whereas in reality every victim was shot with a gun, in the movie, Betty Jo was tied to a tree where, while the killer taped a knife to the slide trombone and stabbed her repeatedly in the back while playing it. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. These days... That is so dumb. Oh my God, you guys. <sighs> These days, the town has come to accept its terrible legend. Every year on Halloween, the park where Betty Jo and Paul Martin were killed now plays the part of a makeshift outdoor theater that plays the town that dreaded sundown every year. And every year, more and more people who were not alive during the terrifying months of the murders grow to believe that what the movie shows is actually what happened. Wow. So much so that the tree in the movie that Betty Jo was tied to is now believed to be the actual tree that resides in the park. And every year, the story of the Texarkana, Texas phantom killer slips further and further into the realm of legend. Well, that was a that was a terrifying look into how humans can sometimes just get away with horrific crimes and nobody ever solves it. <laughs> it's 
never happen other than that. Welcome to Two Towns Over. <laughs> where we do mostly just that exclusively. <laughs> so that's the story. That was that was a wild ride, actually. Yeah. That one, I was having strong Zodiac vibes throughout. Yeah. Well, a lot of people actually think that part of the Zodiac Killer kind of got, because this was kind of like the first serial killer that was like nationally known. So a lot of people have actually said that the the, the Zodiac Killer kind of got inspiration from Texas the Phantom. Yeah, yeah, Phantom Killer. So that's pretty cool. I mean, not cool, but like it's interesting that in a town of what do you say, seventeen thousand people, you people. couldn't find the one guy who decided that he was going to kill a bunch of people. Well, it might lead to believe that it wasn't actually somebody in Texarkana. That's true. It could have been a, a mysterious stranger. Yeah, the Phantom. <laughs> it was Hill People. Well, that, that pretty much wraps it up. That's that's the story of the hook. Thanks for joining us into this uh, tale of um, almost modern day murder. It's kind of fitting that we recorded this on a dark, rainy, full moon Halloween. Yeah, it's dark, rainy, full moon Halloween, guys. Here we are we're talking about the hook hand killers. And Ruben has to drive home in the dark. I sure do. <laughs> Down a wooded road. It's going to be normal. <laughs> <laughs> just if you see somebody with a pillowcase on his head just keep driving that's i'm black <laughs> so just, yeah no i keep, got that part you like, keep driving period uh-huh. anybody on the side of the road I, oh no thank you <laughs> <laughs> you need a ride i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> it looks to me as though you've got the uh the templar cross on a on a on a real big hood back there i think i'm gonna be okay <laughs> just gonna go keep driving uh, so anyway, that was the Phantom Killer of Texarkana, Texas. Yep. The inspiration for the hookhand killer and the boyfriend's death. Or boyfriend's murder. Yep. Whatever you want to call boyfriend's it. Boyfriend's death. Two, two prototypical urban legends that pretty much everybody has somehow heard of at some point. Every 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 everyone and their mom has a story of the one about the boyfriend getting decapitated or hung outside the car or mm-hmm. whatever. So mine when I was a kid it was um so for some reason, the radio would tell them, don't look back. That was what, you know, stay in your cars and don't look back. Yeah. And the boyfriend gets out of the car for whatever reason, and she starts hearing scraping mm-hmm. on the hood of the car. And she gets out of the car. The next morning, the police get her out, and they're like, come with us and don't look back. And she looks back, and the boyfriend's hanging upside down, and what she was hearing was his fingernails scraping across the roof of the car. Yeah. That was the story I heard. I hadn't actually heard the hook hand killer until I was a grown up. That's a, I think I might've heard that story too. I, you know, they, they all blend together so yeah. much that you never know which one is the version. Yeah. I just love the fact that the story, it's always like, you know, an escaped murderer from the insane asylum with a hook for a hand, you know, name one news article that would sit there or radio report. It would say a killer is on the loose. Please. Please remain indoors. Yes. If you are not indoors, please get there for safety. Yeah. I'm not going to give all these extra brainless information. He's got a hook for a hand, and he's psychotic, and he hates premarital sex. <laughs> and he's wearing a nightgown. And, and um, he has long hair, and he likes to dance the, the Charleston. Some For some reason, every <laughs> every time you see him in the background, you hear, Charleston, Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> that actually would be kind of creepy. Yes, it would. To see like an insane man with a hook Just hand Charleston dancing the Charleston. Right at you, like, oh, shit. Because there is something. Is this in, man like, trying to dance battle or kill me? I can't tell. <laughs> there is something like in, in, in innately creepy about 1920s music. I don't know what it is. I've been listening to a lot of it lately for Cthulhu. 
And I'll sit there and listen. I was like, this crap is like the song Boogeyman. Have you heard that one? Nope. Children, have you ever met the Boogeyman today? Yeah, creepy. Yeah. Music, <laughs> for, like, it's like they were all, it's like every single person who made music in the 20s was either smoking a hell of weed, <laughs> and that's where jazz came from, or meth, and that's where all of the other music came from, because it's all creepy as fuck. Like, it's all like. <laughs> Was was the 1920s just a horror movie? Maybe. Because. You look at the way they danced and just, you know. Like, they went hard. <laughs> I think it was to make up for the fact they couldn't drink alcohol. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> oh. There's only two things killers in the 1920s hate. It's premarital sex and alcohol. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us on our trip down two towns over. Uh, I've been Don. I've been Ruben. And now it's time for me to go back to my town. Um, which is literally two towns over. So, <laughs> wow, you're right. Yeah, because this is technically Jack's. So, so pleasant dreams, everybody, and we'll talk to you later. See you next time. <laughs>